Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, como estas? Así, así. Y tú? Bien, bien. So we're talking a little in Spanish, but we're both pretty limited in that area. And we'll bring that back up later. But what's on yeah. your mind, Michael? What, what, what are you thinking about right now? I was thinking about, all right, right. So we think about like knowledge development and where you learn stuff. And like, there's a whole concept of like, do you, like, are we like force feeding um, knowledge into people's mouths? Like you would syrup in someone's mouth. Like, is that like, that's a type of like knowledge acquisition by like sucking it down like syrup. I don't know who actually oh does gosh. that besides, well, I don't know, this like is... maybe not syrup, but maybe like, um, like a juice and not juice. Cause I really don't like juice, but like something that you pour it in. Hmm like concrete into a hole like that's like a, that's like like... a knowledge theory right isn't that like a theory of knowledge <laughs> like you're like an empty vessel you're like a blank slate and like then people like pour stuff onto you and in you and then it becomes part of you yeah yeah the t- tabula rasa right so this goes back to lots of uh european ideas of like the separation of the mind and body and but this is probably how students feel. They probably feel like teachers are pouring syrup down their mouth sometimes, right? When they, when they have no choice over, over the and things like that they learn. You don't need school. that much of it. Yeah. So that we, maybe we need to ask students about a good metaphor. But yeah, it definitely reminds me of Paulo Freire's uh, banking concept, right? The idea that, that students are, are these, you know, treated by schools as these empty vessels we, we, we just put coins and we put knowledge in, right? We're just putting it in there uh, as opposed to these agents with whom we can learn together, right? About the real problems of the world, not these things often we learn in school that don't seem to matter to their lives, right? So I like the banking I, I see where you're going. That's what? a better metaphor than my metaphor because in my metaphor, I'm force feeding people, which is terrible. Yes. It was, yeah. it was making me think of the, the movie Iron Jawed Angels, the scene where uh, um, Alice Paul is being force fed because she's on a hunger oh strike. Oh, God, that's not what I wanted to bring reference. up. No, I was thinking more like joyous, that's... like, and so people like, I don't know. I, I thought that's what you were saying your, your classes are like. No, 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 you don't want to do that. No, <laughs> no, this is like a bad thing, I think. It, it seems to, yeah, I, I feel like people are, are more than just empty vessels. But I do like that we're able to bring up Lost. Um, I do appreciate the fact that we got some John Locke. <laughs> and I think that maybe we should turn this to the, the better metaphor. So if the metaphor is, is for school is somewhat like force feeding, maybe a better metaphor for what school could be like is like a potluck, right? Where oh. everyone, everyone brings like their food, their drinks, their ideas right to the table. And, and so it's not, you know, just determined by, the host, Michael's not just force feeding the students, but the students all bring something. Is that maybe a better 
metaphor I, for the. I appreciate the fact that you went with this and then you made it better <laughs> and you made it fit because mine was 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 rubbish and I apologize to everyone listening. So what we're going to talk today about it involves not these metaphors at all. We should honestly leave these behind probably forever. <laughs> we should never bring them back up. But to think about the role of knowledge and whose knowledge is uh, valued, honored, and discussed in schools, um, we brought in a guest today who's going to speak more eloquently about ideas that have been put much better than what we just did. <laughs> so we would love to welcome into the podcast, Natalie Kiefer. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me today. I apologize for you having to be in the, in the room while we were just having our short conversation. Well, you know, usually when I talk to my students about uh, Paulo Freire and his concept of banking, I usually talk to them in terms of like regurgitation of food into students' brains. So, you know, I can, like I can be gross about this as well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. You that really should not feel as bad. No, no, you really should not encourage us, Dr. Kiefer. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about Natalie Kiefer? Who are you? Tell us about your background in education. Well, I'm an assistant professor of social studies education at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. I graduated from the University of South Florida with my PhD in curriculum and instruction. And while I was working on that degree, I was a high school social studies teacher for 10 years. And I taught AP Human Geography. And I was also lucky because while I was at Hillsborough County Public Schools, they allowed me to write the sociology curriculum and the anthropology curriculum for secondary schools. And so I have a, a strong background in anthropology. My BA is in anthro, and I have a, a cognate for my PhD, as well as a concentration in anthropology for my master's degree. So a lot of where kind of whole funds of knowledge idea comes, comes from my background in, in educational anthropology, which is something that I've been interested in throughout my scholarship. That's very cool. And, and anthropology used to have a more prominent role in the social studies, right? Like historically, there's been, especially in the, the 60s and 70s, there was efforts to kind of take anthropological looks at humans and ask those types of big questions. I'm not sure whether all that curriculum was, was worthwhile or we'd want it, but it certainly is part of the social studies, but often doesn't get its own place in the curriculum, right? There's not a lot of anthropology courses. So that's really cool that you bring that background. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I think it's important not only, you know, we certainly saw this with the NCSS themes, right? There, there were some strong veins of anthropology running through the, the 10 themes that were used a decade or so ago. You're correct. And then with the C3 framework, I think that oftentimes from social scientists, that's one of the critiques that we see is that they worry that sociology and psychology and anthropology has been jettisoned because they're only focusing on geography, economics, um, history and civics now. But I would argue that there certainly is a place for anthropology and the social sciences within the C3 framework. It all depends on how you choose to spin it and how you choose to work it. But you can teach those content areas as long as you're you know, making sure that you're hitting on those standards and it's inquiry-based. For people that are not familiar with the 10 NCSS themes, those were probably kind of the curriculum go-to for a lot of social studies educators prior to the C3 framework, which came out in 2013. And I think the first version of those 10 themes came out in 1994, if I remember right, and then they were updated at one point, I think around 2010. And so for anyone that will add those in the show notes, if people want to learn more. Michael, I will say I'm a little disappointed that neither of us got in a Lafayette. <laughs> I still wanted to stop and be like Lafayette. But then I was like, and then I saw you do the same thing. 
Yeah, I, I was hoping yep, that so. we'd come back to Lafayette and I'd be able to do it then. How many of our listeners yelled Lafayette in their homes or uh, in their cars, wherever they're listening to this? This this is a Hamilton reference, yeah, Doctor Kiefer. If musical, oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Doctor Kiefer was looking at us like, "Oh gosh, what are they talking about now? What have I gotten myself into?" <laughs> it was a wildly popular musical. Um, you know, I've I've heard of the musical, but I, I have to honestly say that I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. I know it's available on Disney Plus, but haven't had a chance yet. That's okay. Well, now you know that there you can yell your city's name in a totally different way if you watch the musical so that's an incentive to to go put it on well and i think it also speaks volumes because here i am living in lafayette and nobody that's never come oh that's not what you guys do that's (laughs) all i would do no no we we, we have gumbo down here and uh you know stuff like that but now i just want to write a follow-up musical to hamilton called lafayette where all the people in the city city learn to say it and chant it and it brings everyone together that's my well, dream. Except they chant Gumbo instead. It, right, but also, <laughs> interestingly enough, if you live in Lafayette, you don't pronounce it Lafayette, it's Lafayette. So when I first came here about five and a half, six years ago, and I was all like, oh, it's so nice to be in Lafayette, everybody looked at me and they're all like, you're not from around here now, are you? <laughs> There's that as well. That sounds like a line from the musical. I can see the, that's, that's the simmering tension over the pronunciation. Um, it, yeah. I'm, all right, I've gone too far. So the reason we're having you on, Dr. Kiefer, is that you recently published an excellent article in Social Studies and the Young Learner, and congratulations on publishing that article. Thank you. So the article is titled, Gathering Funds of Knowledge, an Elementary Social Studies Unit Plan for Bilingual Settings. Can you tell us about this article and your larger work around this? Well, this article stems from work that we did as part of a national professional development grant from from the U.S. uh, Department of Education. And with that grant, we received money in order to be able to start a two-way bilingual um, Spanish-English program within the Lafayette Parish school system. And so we have this one school that we have as a, as a, a main school for the two-way bilingual classroom program. And then it's been extended out through to um, other schools and other parishes where we've um, done presentations and we've, we've done additional work with training teachers to be elementary dual language immersion teachers. And my part on, in the grant is looking at ways to approach dual language immersion in an asset-based way. So focusing on the knowledge that students bring from the home, the knowledge that communities have, and challenging deficit-laden perspectives that we have about immigrant communities and communities where English may not be the, the first language spoken in the home. Deficit perspectives really do seem to, right, like pervade the topic of bilingual education in many ways, I feel like. Even the language we often use, English language learner, I often find is almost a deficit-laden term as opposed to something more like emergent bilingual, because it's so often language is posed as a problem in schools, right? Oh, they do not speak English, as opposed to a student is bringing multiple languages into our class. And I feel like most of the world gets that. But in the United States, there's been, you know, English only movements that have even worked um, and operate in such a deficit. And I would even argue, you know, very racist view towards, you know, Spanish as a language, but also as, you know, Latinx people. 
Yeah, there's implicit bias, I, I think, in our society that comes with somebody who speaks with an accent or somebody who, you know, English is not their first language. And that implicit bias automatically, you know, comes with this whole cache of, of deficit-laden beliefs about people that really do not project an accurate representation of what's going on within these communities. The types of knowledge that they bring in terms of economics, in terms of medicine, in terms of cultural aspects of home experience and, and knowledge. For example, like music and dance that we touch upon and then art and then cooking as well. The next phase that we're um, working on with this is, uh, the, this first article was for pre-K and early elementary. And the next phase that we're going to be looking at, we're going to be focusing almost specifically on economics, as opposed to some of the things that we focused on with culture here. But it's really is looking at kind of economy and this concept of knowledge economy in a very holistic way, and focusing on ways to be able to leverage that type of knowledge in order to be able to make education organic in the classroom and built from the knowledge that's that's coming from the, the home environment instead of, you know, like you and Michael were alluding to at the beginning of this podcast, taking the curriculum and just regurgitating it into the heads of these students in a very kind of a passive uh, teacher centered way. And also in a way where, where teachers are really saying, we're the knowledge keepers, we're the ones that, that know, and it's our responsibility to be able to impart these things onto you because clearly you don't come here knowing anything. Um, so here, let, let me feed you your purple Kool-Aid or, or the syrup, right? Um, that would <laughs> that would make you better citizens, I guess, for lack of a better word. Can you explain for people who are unfamiliar with funds of knowledge what you mean by that term? Funds of knowledge is the sociocultural, economic, and historical knowledge that comes from home and community settings. So in this context, certainly students who come from homes where Spanish is spoken, that, that speech economy in and of itself is an asset that teachers can use in order to be able to construct a, a, a dual language, a bilingual or a multi-language curriculum, right? There are parents and there are um, adults in the household and in the community who have jobs where they're able to support their families and, and there's knowledge that goes with those jobs, whether it's agricultural work, whether it's work in, in restaurant industries, whether it's scientific work, um, whether it's medicinal work and that knowledge, those are assets. And they can also, you know, if teachers know how to tap into them properly, they can be able to bring them, them into the classroom. Now, the, the original Funds of Knowledge book that was written by Gonzalez Molinamonti in, in 2005 was a very educational anthropology book where they advocated for teachers being researchers and teachers actually going into these communities and into students' homes and collecting data and conducting ethnographic studies in order to be able to find out ways to leverage um, funds of knowledge in classroom settings. And, and I think nowadays that's um, much more um, difficult. I think there's some ethical considerations with teachers going into students' homes. Um, but I also think that, that given you know, the standards-driven curriculum 
and the time constraints that, that people have nowadays, that's not always a viable option for teachers. And so this elementary social studies unit plan that we was developed for the purpose of providing teachers with a more accessible way in order to be able to cultivate funds of knowledge and then use that in the curriculum. So this is really great work. And when I was going through my teacher education program, I did not get a lot of preparation in bilingual education and also just topics like funds of knowledge. But increasingly, I'm seeing it. I'm in Texas now. So I have incredible colleagues who are doing a lot of this work and talking about how this is done well and sure it's not gentrified as it enters schools and really who's in control and, and ideas are in it. But it's not something I've seen a lot in social studies. And to me, these are all social studies topics. And so can you tell us a little bit about the social studies angle that you've taken here? And hopefully this will inspire some people to do more of this work. I think the social studies angle here, as it connects with language, I mean, we really do look at language being a, a method that's used in order to be able to transmit culture, transmit concepts of citizenship. Language is a way to be able to socialize children in the home and in order to be able to teach about the history of a family or, or of any different type of cultural tradition. I think that, that language is, is that kind of essential part there. So I, I just see that there's kind of like this naturally symbiotic connection between language and social studies. But you're right, it really is largely untapped. I mean, even if you take a look on the flip side, and you look at the literature on language acquisition in immersion settings, dual immersion settings, or any kind of language learning setting, there's nothing that's really specific to social studies. Everything is, you know, how to teach um, language acquisition within the content area. But oftentimes the recommendations are the same for math and science um, as they are for social studies and even English language arts. Um, and so what we don't see in the literature is a lot of, of this focus on ways that language is actually part of um, social studies in and of itself. So those are policy issues at schools, right? Like how we treat language, how the institutions you know, value different languages. Those are all like the types of policy issues that are very relevant to students' immediate lives and we could take up as social problems or social issues that need to be addressed. I should point out though, there has been some work done in the field and I don't want to not give credit, especially I think first uh, Cynthia Salinas at, at the University of Texas. And they have, they've really done a great job of, of working with um, bilingual, educa bilingual education and social studies as an issue. And there are certainly other uh, scholars in our field that are doing that too. But Dr. Salinas, if no one knows, is a real, uh, she's been around our field for a while and just done incredible work. Absolutely. And I think what I meant was the people who are doing second language acquisition, not necessarily the social studies people. It, it's from that field. But Salinas, right. she's a social right. studies person. She's not like, like Tedek and Lister, for example, who talk about content obligatory language and, and fossilized errors and stuff like that. And another connection that I really want to point out with social studies and language is this connection between this idea of functions of language and how language is actually used. Because when you think about language and you think about um, forms of representation within social studies, um, language is used um, for seeking information, also for informing others and for being able to communicate knowledge. So communicating conclusions, um, taking in informed action, including different ways of being able to express needs, wants, ideas, and feelings, right? So just like with English language arts, Language really is kind of, I mean, I, I think of it as an analogy like macaroni and cheese, right? Language is the macaroni, 
um, that's conduit through which, you know, we get to enjoy cheese, which is the social studies. And I, I, I love myself some cheese. So I, I, I really enjoy this, this metaphor here. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you. it. It's so much better. <laughs> But language, you know, whatever language is used to communicate social studies, there's there's always a historical component to it. There's always a sociocultural component to it. And I think that really breathes life into and provides a solid rationale for or for the relevancy of, of, of this work. So I have a question. You earlier talked about how um, home visits are something that's not really happening anymore. Um, what suggestions do you have for educators who want to tap into the different funds of knowledge? Well, in the article, what we did was we provided um, some graphic organizers that students would be able to take home in order to be able to spark conversation with their parents. And the graphic organizers are both in English and in Spanish. So if, if it's a Spanish-speaking um, home environment, then students would be able to conduct the interviews and have the conversations with their parents in Spanish. And then once again, if it's an English language setting, then, then that would be able to happen as well. And this, the, the graphic organizers can be translated into any language. We just happen to do this article with English and Spanish um, because of the grant that we're on right now. Um, so that that's one way. I think that that's definitely one um, the way that we've chosen with this article in order to be able to elicit funds of knowledge from, from the parents. And I also know that parents really appreciate it when their children come home and say, hey, I need to have a conversation with you about, you know, um, foodways, um, music and dance in our society, and, and about um, art and other things like that. It, it gives them an opportunity to be able to have a, a great um, knowledge building conversation, and then teachers can use that. I, I also think other ways would be just um, teachers finding ways that work for them in order to be able to articulate with the parents and know that, that they're welcome. And the classroom is an environment where um, maybe even if they can't visit all the time, they can certainly um, find ways to have input. And the graphic organizers are available on the, um, the link to the article that we'll have in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're in social studies in the young learner. They're they're attached as a as a pullout to a companion to the article. Excellent. Do you have any suggestions for our monolingual um, teacher educators that are trying to do uh, better in supporting students who speak many different languages in their classroom? I um I always suggest listening and being patient. And I, I know that there are a lot of different ways that even if you don't speak that language, a, a language that's spoken in the home of, of your students, you can show interest and let your students know that you're interested in, in learning about it without kind of like veering over on that side of like, you know, cultural appropriation or all that kind of stuff. But there are ways that you can open your ears and listen. There are tools. Um, there are translation tools that you can use if you need to communicate with parents. It's not really that difficult to copy and paste something into Google Translate and, and try your very best. But I, th I think that listening is a good place to start. Um, and I, I think that getting innovative and creative and finding ways to be able to open up channels of communication can be really helpful. And it, it wouldn't necessarily just be for students that, that speak another language. It might also be um, for students whose parents maybe are hard of hearing or deaf, you know, there, there's ways to, to get creative and to figure out ways to communicate. But I think listening is a good place to start. 
I love that. And, and I'm monolingual English speaker. And so I've been thinking a lot about what are the things I can do. And I think listening, uh, your suggestion of listening is a great starting point. And I've thought a lot about, you know, I don't have to do it all. I think that's one of the problems as teachers, we think we're supposed to do it. So I have to learn the, uh, a new language and then start doing it. Instead, I, I think recently what I've started to realize, which is instead of, you know, forcing, you know, everything down my students' throats, right? Like some people do. I can allow students to, to bring their languages into the classroom and saying. Yeah, exactly. And, and to learn and to listen to the ways that they are comfortable expressing themselves in either their home language or the language that they're working to acquire. Um, case in point, I'm, I may be the first author on this article, but um, two of the authors, Julia Lopez and Jihan Yang, are both Spanish is their first language. And then Michelle, Dr. Haj Broussard is, is multilingual. And as I was working on, on this article with Julia Lopez and Jihan Young, the two early childhood teachers that contributed to this work, one of the things that I realized really quickly and they communicated to me is that they would much rather meet face-to-face, -face, either you know in person or via Zoom, just because it, it wasn't easy to talk over the phone. They really wanted to see these, um, these nonverbal cues and you know, texting doesn't always communicate things very well, but, but we, we found a way to be able to work and to be able to communicate well with each other, even though you know, I do not speak Spanish. And, and I think it, it just took me kind of taking a back seat and saying, hey, you tell me how you would, would like us to proceed. I'll also share in the show notes for anyone speaking another language, seeing people talk, right? Seeing their mouth and movements is a bit easier. And so uh, my colleague here at the University of North Texas, he actually wrote a picture book called Behind My Mask, which is about talking about, you know, uh, speaking. And it's a bilingual book um, in English and Spanish that, that kind of talks about the challenges with COVID and wearing masks and, and communicating and showing who you are. It's a really cool book. It's got beautiful illustrations and his spouse, uh, Marta, who's doing work at, at our university also, she's an artist and did all the pictures and images for it. So, so I'll link that in the show notes. If you're interested, it's a great book. Uh, even after the pandemic is over, right? It's someday, I think it's still a great book to talk about those experiences and how we express ourselves. So yeah, what's what's their preferred uh, mode of communication and, and how do they you know feel most comfortable? I mean, I don't speak Spanish, but I do speak French. And I know that when I'm speaking in person with somebody, it's a heck of a lot easier for me. But if, if they expect me to speak to them over the phone and I lose all that other nonverbal input, then I freeze. And those context clues are, are really essential when you're communicating. So the the folk art project that, that the students worked on, what was the end result of this? Like, what did what did the it culminate as? What students would do is, you know, gather recipes. They would gather artifacts about music and dance, and then um, in the the article, they created these uh, molas, which were these um, artwork representations of animals. And this, this piece of artwork um, would be put together to create this kind of uh, a, a big book, like a, a, a large project book where students would be able to take all the work that they've created and put it all together so that they'd have this, this large kind of picture book that would, that would be a culmination of all their work that they could keep in the classroom. And it could certainly be something that was, um, 
malleable and it, and it could be um, done in a different way other than just a book. Like if you wanted to have more than just pictures of people dancing or more than just pictures of instruments, I'm sure that there would be ways that, that you could attach artifacts in terms of like audio files and, and videos as well. But this, this big book at the end, which is this summative assessment would pull together all of these different artifacts that were created as they explored dance and music and then food and then artwork. Um, but then also at the beginning where um, they were setting the geographical setting, they would also have created maps of the different geographical locations where this knowledge was being pulled from that has a strong connection to um, families' heritage from within the classroom. What a neat way to like build like a class community. I love it. Yeah. Well, and the cool thing too that I think they did with the artwork on the um, in the, the article is they they showed kind of almost gave a little bit of a representation. I, I think it's on page 16 of how um, Julia Lopez had actually had her students create these molas. So a, a classroom of um, pre-K students and they took all the molas and instead of isolating them, they put them together. So each mola became a tile and a mosaic. And it was something that was hung up in, in their classroom. Now, when we were working on creating this article, it was pre-COVID-19 and, and she had taken a couple of pictures. Um, but then when COVID-19 happened, we weren't able to go back into her classroom to mm -hmm. get an image of the entire uh, MOLA as it, at the, the mosaic of MOLAs as it was. So we had these individual images of MOLAs and we were able to pull them together. But, but seeing the whole entire like panel of MOLAs up in her classroom was really quite impressive. It was beautiful. Um, I, I think that um, NCSS did a nice job with, um, with using them as, as a focal piece for this article as well. But yeah, the big book would, it would pull together recipes from, that students had brought in from their families and different types of, of music and then, and then the artwork as well. It kind of reminds me of um, like a potluck where everyone... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, when you were talking about this at the beginning of this episode, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> this is definitely our food-themed episode. What other advice do you have for educators who are looking to do a better job at, at thinking about the issues you bring up in the article? Well, I think that it's important for teachers to keep in mind that there's an awful lot that we can learn from our students. And if we take the time to be able to figure out what makes our students tick, what makes their heart beat, then we can find a way to make curriculum that, like Geneva Gay would say, is, is relevant to their lives and reflective of their realities and something that, that makes them really interested in learning. And not only that, but valuing the knowledge that they bring from home and not having this deficit-laden perspective where we focus on the things that we believe students are lacking. You know, if you have a deficit-laden perspective of your students, you you live in a, a deficit-laden kind of a world, right? Especially in terms of, of your approach to education. And, and I certainly think that there are, are problems in any community. It doesn't matter what language is being spoken, what the social class is, what the racial composition is. Th these problems certainly exist, but if all we do is hyper-focus on them and problematize our students and problematize the communities that we're teaching, then we're, we're missing a really large part of the picture when we can be focusing on the different strengths and the different assets that they can bring into the classroom and ways that we can use them 
to create a curriculum that, that really is a living and breathing curriculum that allows us to be able to, I think, make social studies much more engaging. And like I said, relevant to their lives. They, they would see that, that social studies is something that, that's all around them instead of something that is just simply regurgitated to them. <laughs> so thank you so much, Natalie Kiefer, for joining us and giving us a lot to chew on. <laughs> Great food-based reference there. Absolutely. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you and your work online or your favorite restaurant menus? Oh, man. Um, well, obviously, the social studies in the, the Young Learner article here. My email is Natalie with a dot in the middle and then Kiefer at louisiana.edu. And I'm over here in... Lafayette. <laughs> so if you want to come Lafayette. and yell Lafayette, <laughs> I'll know that you watched Hamilton, but I also will know that you're not from around here. <laughs> you can uh, contact Dr. Kiefer uh, by email. If you send her an email that involves delicious food, uh, please CC me on that and Michael too. Um, and we hope to continue gumbo to recipe. <laughs> your favorite gumbo recipe. Hey, I actually ate gumbo for lunch today. So I'm here. I'm ready for it. Nice. And so... We are uh, hoping to continue the conversation online and during meals. We're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun for creative education or you just want to chat, we're here at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook. And if you haven't already, subscribe uh, to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. And we know that you're all out there leaving your favorite five-star reviews for restaurants. Why not leave one for a podcast? Uh, if you do so, it will help people find this podcast. Do we have any five-star reviews to share? We do. We absolutely do. This one is from a 37383BDBEH. Very good. I just listened to Diverse Families in the Elementary Classroom podcast, and I loved it. It gave some helpful advice on how to incorporate the topic of diverse families in the classroom without going over the top. Thank you very much for your five-star review. And I like they don't think we're over the top. That's good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 4232. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education Podcast. Signing off. Bye, Fayette.